Today we are in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem and Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Good morning, Harbor. How's everyone doing? Um, We're just really glad that you chose to spend your Sunday morning here with us today, uh, even if it's at home. So thank you for being here. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Lindsay Fields, and I work with Sojourn Collegiate Ministry at BU as a campus minister. Um, I've been privileged enough to get to speak here a few times, uh, and I'm happy to fill in for Katie today uh, again, especially as she heals and gets time at home with her family. Um, So this week we're finishing up the series called Introducing the King. It's the first part in a year-long journey through the book of Matthew. Uh, But just in case you've missed the previous messages or, you know, you were here, but you like can't even remember what you had for breakfast, let alone the messages for the last three weeks, uh, I figured I would start with a little overview. Um, so the first big thing is that in his writing of the Gospels, uh, Matthew has two main goals. The first is to make the point that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And the second is to communicate what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus. So in Matthew chapter one, we see the image of this kingdom being set up. The person of Jesus sets up a new kingdom and a new community that are unlike anything that people had expected. Matthew also wants us to be certain of who Jesus is. I mean, discipleship starts with following, and it's pretty hard to follow something that you don't know. Uh, We did skip chapter two, probably because we'll return to it for Christmas. uh, But in chapter three, we're introduced to John the Baptist. Uh, This is Jesus's cousin, and he's known as the voice in the wilderness. You know, the one to pave the way for Jesus. And his message is one of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew also wants us to see that to be a disciple is to be changed by Jesus. And that change should produce good fruit. And last week, we looked at the first half of chapter four, 
where Jesus is being tempted in the desert. What we see here is that Jesus knows his mission. He's not just come here to disperse knowledge, but to obey God's calling on his life. When God gives instructions, disciples obey because they're committed to the mission of Jesus. So in summary, a disciple is somebody who is following Jesus, who is being changed by Jesus, and who is committed to the mission of Jesus. So this is the uh, definition of discipleship that we've been using for this past month and will continue to use. And it actually comes out of today's uh, passage. But before we dig more into what it means to be a disciple, uh, I'm going to circle back to Matthew's first goal of underlining the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one that all the prophets talked about. So when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So an important thing to remember while reading this book is that the people who were receiving this message, the people that Matthew was writing to, they knew their, what we would call Old Testament, what they would just call scriptures. Uh, They knew the promises and the signs and the words. So when Matthew references verses from Isaiah, like he does here, the crowd got the point. They understood the connection and the message. I, however, very often do not understand. Uh, So I resort to looking it up, uh, which is what I did for this. Uh, So for the people here today who are like me, uh, I'm going to share with you what I've learned. So this first part of that passage, uh, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon, Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Believe it or not, this is actually a really important piece. So we're going to start with a little history, touch of geography. Zebulon and Naphtali are areas of land that were given to, the, to two of the tribes of Israel when they left the wilderness and entered into the promised land. Uh, then the, the areas of land are named after the tribes that they were given to. So Nazareth is located in the territory of Zebulon, and Capernaum is in Naphtali's territory. So by mentioning Jesus's movements here, Matthew is referencing those ancient territories, and then he names those territories just to make sure people catch the reference. It's kind of like, you know, when people go, I went to school in Cambridge, Harvard, you know, like that type of thing. Like he's, he's making a reference that people would catch. And so by directly connecting Jesus to Galilee, Zebulon, and Naphtali, the people listening to this message would already be thinking about the verse in Isaiah that Matthew is referencing. And this verse in Isaiah would also spark something very specific in people's minds. Hope. 
You see, the verse in Isaiah comes in the middle of a multi-chapter story of judgment. The kings of Aram and Israel have plotted against the kingdom of Judah, and for that, they will be punished by God. But in the middle of that story of punishment and judgment, God says that for Judah and for Israel, there's hope and redemption in the coming Messiah. So this is what Matthew is referencing. The original verse in Isaiah is this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. By way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And if you didn't recognize this reference, you might recognize if you read a few verses later. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the same reference. It's the same story. And if that doesn't sound familiar, just come back in December. It'll probably come back up. Uh, but by referencing this specific verse in Isaiah, Matthew's basically hanging this like giant neon sign that says, Jesus is the Messiah. He's it. He's the one. Jesus is our hope. The light of the world has come into this place of darkness, and everyone listening to this message would have understood. And so finally, Matthew closes out his previous multi-chapter thesis with this note. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So why does he do this? Why is this like an interesting point? Because it's not the first time we've heard this message, right? But that's actually why it's such an important note. Because the first public message that Matthew has Jesus preaching is word for word the same message that John had been preaching. In this verse, Matthew is making the transition from John to Jesus. By connecting John and Jesus in this way, Matthew's underlining the fact that John is the voice in the wilderness that he's the one who's supposed to be preparing the way for the coming Messiah. And that Messiah is picking up exactly where John left off. It also connects back to one of the greatest leaders in all of Israel's history, Moses. He'd been leading the people in the desert for 40 years, led them out of slavery from Egypt, and right before they get to the promised land, he dies. And Joshua takes over. And actually, in the book of Joshua, the way that this whole event, this trans, this great transi transition in history is, is mentioned is, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then. Like, that's it. That's all it says. This huge moment, and it just kind of moves past it. Because Moses wasn't the point. This was always meant to happen. And here, Matthew is doing the same thing. John isn't the point. The time of preparation and making way had come to an end. Now is the time for God's ministry, for the reclaiming of God's dream for the world. Now it's time for Jesus. So what does that mean 
if Jesus is the Messiah and, and we as God's people are meant to follow the Messiah, to follow Jesus, what, what does that look like? What does that mean? So the very next passage or next part of the passage kind of helps lay that out. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So I've always kind of loved these stories throughout the Gospels of Jesus calling his disciples. Like, it's always felt just a little bit random and a little bit haphazard to me, but like in the best way possible. Because I always kind of picture this unknown Jesus just walking around randomly asking people to follow him. But the reality is that's not what's going on. Um, Jesus was already somewhat known in this region. And most likely his name was already getting around, especially once John, who had a very large following, was like, this is the guy. This is the one you should be following. So Jesus wasn't a complete unknown, even if that's what I have in my head. And while the stories of Jesus calling his disciples are slightly different throughout the four Gospels, there are a lot of similarities. And one of them is that it's always happened after Jesus has taken the time to show that he was committed to the mission of God. And so whether that's through the story of his temptation in the wilderness or through his baptism or through both, like here in Matthew, Jesus has already made it clear that he's committed to God's purpose. And now taking another step back in the history books, we're going to take a look at what it looked like to uh, to be a disciple during Jesus's time. Because the term disciple was not made up for Jesus and his followers. It was something that had been around for a while and understood well at Jesus's time. So getting to the point of becoming a disciple of a rabbi was actually quite involved. To start, boys around the age of six would start to go to school to memorize the entire Torah. So by the time they were 10 years old, they had the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy completely memorized. I just, I couldn't, like, that's not something that I could ever do. Like, I could do, if it was like Spice Girls lyrics, I'd be on it. But like, the Torah, not so much, especially at six years old, right? So once they hit 10, like, they, most of these boys would then leave school. And they would go on to become an apprentice, usually for their father or some other male family member in the family trade. But the best of the best of those 10-year-olds would stay and continue to learn. They would then memorize the rest of the entire scriptures, everything from Genesis to, what's the last book, Mal Malachi? Something, I should know the last one, but the last one. Um, and so by the time they're about 14, they would have, have all of them memorized. And then again, there would be this another phase where most would then leave school to go apprentice, but the best of the best of the best of them would continue on in their studies, and they would become a disciple 
of a specific rabbi. But when you're becoming a disciple, you don't just like apply to be a disciple in this generalized pool of rabbis. You would choose a specific rabbi that you wanted to emulate, that you respected and wanted to learn from. So like think of it like applying for your PhD to a specific professor, right? Like you would kind of say that I want to learn from you. And then that rabbi would absolutely grill this potential disciple, just peppering them with question after question after question. Because these rabbis wanted to know, does this kid have what it takes to be me? Can they do what I do? Can they be who I am? Because when you apply to be somebody's disciple, you don't just want to know what your rabbi knows. You want to be who your rabbi is. You would leave everything you had and you would follow your rabbi. So here in this story, we have Jesus walking up the beach, looking at these guys fishing, and he asks them to be his disciples. What's wrong with this picture? Well, for starters, Jesus asked them to follow him, not the other way around. And secondly, these guys are out fishing. They're not in the temple studying, which means they didn't make the cut. They aren't the best of the best of the best. James and John were with their father, which means that they're probably still apprenticing and that potentially left school fairly recently. And it doesn't say if Simon Peter and Andrew are with their father or not, which might mean that they left school longer ago and no longer need this like supervision. The point is, this is all wrong. This is not how one becomes a disciple of a rabbi. It's backwards. It's upside down. So Jesus is looking at these boys because they're probably much younger than we give them credit for. And he's telling them, you can be like me. Jesus was looking at these castaways, these not good enoughs, these mediocres, and he was giving them a different identity. Jesus is saying that this upside down kingdom of God is for everybody, not just the elite. He says, come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. In some translations, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, you've probably heard that this verse always makes me think of this saying that you've probably all heard. Give a person a fish and feed them for a day. Teach them to fish. Feed them for a lifetime, right? Here's the thing I love about that saying. It's relational. I mean, think about it. When you go fishing, you don't just go for a couple minutes, right? It's usually like an all-day adventure, if not a multi-day adventure. And if you've ever met a fisherman, you know that the one thing they love to do is tell stories about their catch, right? Especially if they caught the big one. Although the, the size of the fish might change over time. Uh, but if you're teaching somebody to fish, you're spending time with that person. You're sharing life with them. You're sharing stories and making memories together. So before I started working for Sojourn, I actually worked in fish, like literally. I got my degree in marine biology and I spent a few years working in aquariums. But my first real job out of college was working for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife as a creel surveyor, which I'm sure you all know what that is. 
Uh, it basically meant that I would interview fishermen, keep data on fish catches, etc. Every now and then, if I came across a salmon that somebody had caught, I would actually like cut off its snout and keep it in my freezer until we could analyze it for later. It's a weird, weird job. Um, but the thing about this job is it was located in the literal middle of nowhere. Uh, has anybody here seen Wild Wild Country on Netflix from a few years, a docuseries from a few years ago? It's in the same area, so you'd have the visuals. But um, the town I was staying in uh, it was called Moppin. It's a population of roughly 500 people. Um, and my work site was actually 10 miles outside of Moppin. And it was at the mouth of a 17-mile gravel dead-end road. So each morning, I'd get to my work trailer, which had no power, and the door didn't really shut. And I would roll out this stop sign that had been cemented into a tire. And then when people would leave the area, I would stop them, and then we'd go through a series of questions, and I'd look at their fish and maybe cut off some snouts and be on my way. It was a weird job. Uh, so this is actually a picture of the town of Maupin. Like, this is the town. This is it. And it looks like an old picture, but it's not. This is still what it looks like. Just off screen, there's a two-pump gas station that was only open during daylight hours. Um, and that white bus in the, in the back, that's a rafting bus, because there's the river there, so the guides would take, uh, people whitewater rafting. And the best part about that is they'd always stop at my work site and we'd trade snacks for the day. Uh, and then this next picture, this is my work site. Uh, actually, it's not. My work site was like, I don't know, another like 15 minutes or something down the road. But it's so remote that Google Maps hasn't made it out there. So you can't actually find a picture of it. But the next picture is in, that's my trailer. That That right there is where I spent a lot of hours of my life. And so the reason I'm setting this up is just to kind of get the visual of where we are. But uh, one day on my drive to work, I'm going down the road, which is technically a highway, and there's just this golden retriever sitting out there. And I was like, this is weird. So I park my car in the middle of the road because I'm the only one around and go get this dog. And I look down and sure enough, there's a guy fly fishing on the river. And so I'm assuming the two go together. Uh, so I take the dog down to the river and, uh, this guy, his name was Patrick had been, uh, he had been, and the reason he was distracted, didn't realize the dog left was because he had just caught a, a nice steelhead trout and he was really pumped about it. Turned out it was his first time catching a steelhead while fly fishing, which if you're not a fly fisher is a big deal. Like this, it's a good fish. So we had a good chat. I, you know, we admired his fish. We talked about his dog. We, you know, talked or whatever. And then I left and I went to work. And then the next day, this guy, Patrick, shows back up. He comes to my work site and he had, it turns out he had smoked this trout overnight and he wanted to share it with me. He was so excited about that moment and that I got to experience that moment with him that he wanted to share, to continue to share this moment together. And, you know, I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten what that moment was. To me, this is discipleship. It's relationship and it's intimacy and it's closeness. 
It's not the transfer of knowledge or doctrine or training. It's life. It's asking questions and listening to responses and just a life that is shared together. It's not the big moments. It's all the little small moments put together. It's not a curriculum or a program. It's a way of life. It's not giving somebody a fish, unless that's the smoked trout that you caught together. Um, but it's spending the time and effort and energy to teach them how to fish. And here's the other thing. Everyone is being discipled by something. The question isn't if you're being discipled, but what you're being discipled by. So my niece watches a lot of Bluey and has started to use the word cheeky to describe other people. My nephew has grown up in Oregon with a sports family, including his aunt. And at five years old, he already bleeds green and gold for the Portland Timbers. After living in Boston for 15 years, I no longer wait for the walk signal before I cross the street. Um, but I have kept my Oregon roots by refusing to use an umbrella and just this deep disdain for anything California. These are all learned behaviors that we were discipled into by the people and the culture around us. So what are you being discipled by? You can maybe start to figure that out by starting with these two questions. Where are you spending yourself? Your time, your money, your energy, your thoughts. Where is that going? And secondly, what are you replicating? Finding the answers to these questions will help you determine what you're being discipled by. So looking again into the passage, it says that at once Jesus had called them, at once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. To be a disciple of Jesus is to drop everything and follow him. Now, this doesn't always mean that you have to leave behind your family or your career to follow Jesus. But what it does mean is that you're being asked to drop everything that gets in the way of you following Jesus. And sometimes that is family or career, even though we pray that it's not. Being a disciple of Jesus is not an easy thing to do. It requires a willingness to change and grow and let go of things. It's about aligning your heart and your mind with God's. A disciple is someone who is following Jesus, who's being changed by Jesus, and who's committed to the mission of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus is about is being about Jesus, not being about ourselves. So there's this saying, this kind of blessing, that says this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So this is a paraphrase of a quote from one of the earliest members of the rabbinic movement, and the original quote said, Let thy house be a meeting house for the wise, and powder thyself in the dust of their feet, and drink their words with thirstiness. So the rabbis had a tendency to teach as they walked. Uh, so the idea here is that you will draw so close to your rabbi that you would be caked in the dust 
from their feet as they're walking. This is also where the, this original quote is also where the phrase to sit at somebody's feet comes from. The idea of sitting in front of your rabbi to soak in their knowledge and learn all that there is to learn. To be a disciple of Jesus is to sit at the feet of Jesus and to learn, to be caked in Jesus's dust because we've drawn so near to him. But we aren't just supposed to stop there. Jesus is asking us to take on his mission by bringing his message into our communities and help others to find the freedom in him that we've found. So Jesus is asking us to help others learn what it means to follow him and be changed by him. And we do this by doing what Jesus did. He went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So often we separate out serving our communities and disciple-making, as if they're two different things. But they aren't. I, in this last passage, we see the basic outline of Jesus' ministry, which is teaching, preaching, and healing. If we want others to know the Jesus that we know, serving, healing, is a major component of that. But not some like sterilized, distant version of serving. It's the dirty kind that sees you laying your hands on the sick, holding those in pain and, and comforting those going through grief. And to do that kind of serving, to care for others on that level, you have to know them and you have to do life with them. Being a disciple does not mean that you separate yourself away from your community, even if that separation is church. Being a disciple means that in all of the spaces, is, is being in all of the spaces and pointing out where God is actively already working. Now, sometimes this can feel like a really tall order, right? I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. So how do you help somebody else do that? But here's the really important part. Jesus wouldn't call you if he didn't think that you could be like him. And since Jesus has called all of us, it means that Jesus believes in us. Jesus has faith in us. After all, Jesus left this ragtag group of 11 guys standing up on a hillside and entrusted them with everything. Within this group are ones that doubted, ones that were rebels, ones that were chaotic and unpredictable, and all of them had so many questions. And yet... Despite all of their underqualifications, despite the fact that they were the not good enoughs, not the best of the best of the best, and, and really unprepared, Jesus saw them all as worthy and capable leaders. So if that's what this first group of disciples look like, isn't it possible that we may be more qualified to pursue God's dream for the world than we give ourselves credit for? What if God actually believes that we can be the kind of people that God has created us to be? And what if we 
believe that we can be those people. Being a disciple of Jesus is not easy work. It requires dropping everything to follow God's dream instead of our own. It's being willing to follow Jesus, being willing to be changed by Jesus, and being committed to the mission of Jesus. It's a whole life journey that we will get wrong far more often than we get right. But that same Jesus that we believe in also believes in us. And to me, that's a really beautiful thing. So as we leave this space and go out into our communities, I pray that you will not only know the love that Jesus has for you, but that you will believe in that love. So may you believe that Jesus has faith in you. And may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Amen.